0: to the Mr. Sensational, Gino Vino Podcast on the Odyssey Robots Radio Network. F-O-L-K-S, folks. It's me. It's me. It is Gino V. Mr. Sensational Gino Vega coming to you with episode 37 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Folks, what is going on? This is wild. This is crazy. This is my third time now in a row today attempting to record the much maligned, the much cursed episode 37 of the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. But folks... While we may be exceedingly average, while we may be horrendously ordinary, we here at the MSGV Podcast are not quitters, oh no, oh no, we persevere, we persevere and coming to you with the best 30 to 40 minutes of unwanted, unnecessary, unneeded takes, tales, and... Ruminations in the podcasting sphere. So as agonizing as this particular uh, episode attempt has been thus far, we're coming to you regardless. Yes, uh, take one, uh, the entire recording program that I use crashed about six minutes into uh, my opening rap, in which I felt that I was kind of spinning some very quality bad content, um, all lost to uh, the ones and zero wastes of uh, disappeared data, um, wherever it may be. Take two, my blue snowball microphone, which once again, once again, had been unceremoniously dropped on its head, uh, much like Steve Williams and Ted DiBiase in All Japan Pro Wrestling in the 1990s, um, dropped on its head into a pool of standing water from a knocked over can of sparkling water. Uh, this done by one of my three cats. Um, possibly due to this head droppage of the microphone, I'd plugged it back in and I was recording take two and I stopped to make sure everything was working and there was a horrible static noise in the background and I thought maybe the microphone was finally toast because I tried everything, turning things on and off, plugging, unplugging, etc., cetera, et cetera. Nothing uh, could change it. There was still a staticky background noise. I thought maybe we were sunk for this week. But uh, finally, after the third go-around of unplugging and replugging everything, it appears to be working. And so, to quote the rather mediocre hard rock band Motley Crue, it's on with the show. Everything is now stable and good to go, minus some uh, really obnoxious construction sounds in the background that I think are only relevant to me. I don't think you can necessarily hear them from where you may be listening. But uh, there's some folks up on the hill that bought this Inhabitable home uh, For some ungodly amount of money And now are renovating the entire thing Adding a swimming pool There's these huge granite trucks coming and going Day in and day out um, While the rest of us plebes have to listen To the sound of cash money success As some wine country villa is being constructed above us So more power to them I guess in the meantime, I had attempted twice to kick off this episode by talking about how we are a show that sensationalizes the everyday, talking about how we are all about all things, nothing, nowhere, no one, and less than, um, which got me thinking about the fact that there's this movie out there right now called Nobody, a movie that I have seen advertised umpteen times of various... I think they it's been advertised on UFC shows. I feel like it's like... UFC Fight Night, brought to you by nobody, in theaters now, starring Bob Odenkirk. And meanwhile, it was, if I remember correctly, the first film that IC Robots went to go see in an actual, factual, as he would say, movie theater, uh, since the global COVID-19 pandemic began. And he actually did a whole feature on it on his show. But I have this mental block with this movie. Both when it comes to uh, seeing trailers, seeing advertisements on television, and even hearing uh, ISR do a rundown of it. I can never remember what it's actually about. And um, I did this whole bit, so I already have the data now. Uh, I had uh, looked up on the Google machine, looked up the Wikipedia entry for this film, Nobody... And in attempting to read the plot, I found out the reason I can't understand what it's about is I feel like this is the kind of flick that one would actually have to see to understand, because when I just try to read the plot, I've, I met with this laundry list of events and characters with normal average people's names, and it's hard to keep track of who the heck they're talking about if you haven't actually seen it. Um, So I think it's, it it appears to be a very event-based film, a very situational-based film, a plot-based film, and it's hard to just kind of... It's about nobody, I guess. That's why I can't, uh, I can't wrap my my head around the plot. Um, and again, it's n- nothing. Uh, uh, I'm sure ISR did a great rundown of it, but I think also I was more taken with just the uh, the details of it being his return to the theater more than the specifics of the actual film. So maybe someday I'll see Nobody for myself, and I can finally understand and remember what it is actually about though I'm not much of a film guy, so my odds of seeing it are probably slim to none. Uh, The other thing that I had mentioned was this Bob Odenkirk fellow. I knew the name, I knew the face, I could not for the life of me remember where I knew the name or face from. So I figured since I'd used the Google machine and I had the Nobody film right up here on my phone, I could just click on over to his Wikipedia page and uh, see what he's all about. But uh, per the nobody page, there's no actual active link to him having a Wikipedia page. But you know what? This is entirely moot now because I was going to say, and now this is why the podcast gods were shutting me down earlier. I was saying, ha ha, you know, I'm going to look him up and he doesn't have a, a Wikipedia entry. Um, I Googled him separately from Wikipedia and I found his information, but now I realize I'm looking at a Wikipedia page. And now suddenly, mysteriously, Oh, I see what the issue is. My God. Okay, it looked as if this individual did not have a Wikipedia page when I looked at the Nobody film Wikipedia entry, starring Bob Odenkirk, just black text, no link. The issue? My man was also a producer, and he's already linked up in the producer credits. Ha ha. So anyway, I thought it was hilarious that there was no Bob Odenkirk Wikipedia page, yet the information that I did find on him was on a Wikipedia page, but I didn't realize. I was looking at Wikipedia. Oh, the lies we lead when we weave to deceive. I can't remember how that goes, whatever. Anyway, uh, the fact is, it, I now understand he is Saul, a better call, Saul a show I'm familiar with, but another one I will probably never actually get to or uh, view. I was mistaking him with um, the individual on that comedy that everyone likes that has like Justine Bateman's brother in it, and this guy, uh, one of the characters is a magician that comes out to the final countdown. I was confusing him with that actor. I believe it is because they both sort of rock the receding hairline pompadour, and I can relate to that, unfortunately, that um, particular hairstyle. It's kind of where I'm at these days. Folks, we're going to move on to the main event topic for today. But before we do, I just want to give a quick plug here. As you may already know, our flagship show here on the network, um IC Robots Stuck at Home show has in fact come to an end as IC Robots is no longer truly stuck at home as he was in the early days of the pandemic. Uh, he has transitioned into the IC Robots Trying to Get Vaccinated show, which has run for a few episodes now, a couple of episodes. But uh, as we were all overjoyed to find out on the most recent episode, it's already coming to an end because in just a couple of days here, uh, our man ICU Robots is in fact receiving his COVID vaccination. So I think he's going to be taking a little time off to regroup and figure out what's going on at the flagship level. We will keep you posted here. Uh, In the meantime, go ahead and check out his most recent episode in the IC Robots Radio Network archives. Either go to icrobots.com or just look up our feed on any podcast purveyor, IC Robots Radio Network. Uh, The Gino Vega, what Gino Vega had for lunch segment that I have been doing for him is also finally At an end, the final segment was read on what was possibly the final episode of the Trying to Get Vaccinated show. So check it out. That's what's been going on on the flagship level. Meanwhile, we will keep churning along here doing our ordinary average thing on the Mr. Sensational Gino Vega show. We'll be back in just a moment to talk about baseball and to talk about the Oakland Athletics. You know, it's funny. I don't think it's fair to say that I was a baseball fan as a youth, but I loved baseball. Not playing baseball, although I did occasionally, uh, me and my brother and our two age-equivalent friends that we each had, Anand and Ashok Basawapatna, Um, Anand was more or less my age. Ashok was my brother's age. We would play two-on-two wiffle ball in my parents' backyard where we would pretend to be various major leaguers when we were up to bat. Um, But I wasn't so much in love with baseball as a sport, but I was in love with baseball as a mythology. I was in love with the sounds and smells and sights of baseball the smell of fresh cut grass the sound of a bat cracking on a ball the sound of vendors selling peanuts popcorn uh the glistening look of uh, some dudes light beer sloshing around in a plastic cup going to the games and then languishing and lounging out in the sun out in the stands um, the players with the organ music, because they came out to bat in their uniforms. And then the players, as far as being this assortment of characters that I came to know by way of baseball cards. Something that uh, Icy Robots talks about regularly on his flagship show. But I'm definitely in the same world, in the same universe, on the same wavelength with him as far as baseball cards go, is that um, I had baseball cards as a kid. I really just got them by way of whatever came down the pike through the packs of Tops, Donruss, Fleer. Later on, I think uh, some upper deck cards, but but Tops, Donruss, and Fleer were my, my uh, prime years go-to for childhood baseball card collecting. I, I, I would end up with just whatever I got out of those uh, packs, along with a stale piece of bubble gum. I do think there were a couple uh, baseball card shops that popped up for a few here and there in Santa Rosa um, in the late 80s when I was a kid. Um, I I feel like there was one on Mendocino Avenue across from Santa Rosa High School um, near where uh, the skateboard store Great Skates was. Uh, I think it was upstairs. Um, I remember going there like once. And I feel like there was also one maybe in Roner Park or between Roner Park and Santa Rosa. In any case, but I was young and I wasn't going to be spending a fortune buying uh, valuable baseball cards at a baseball card shop. I was just into just throwing my quarters down and, and getting a pack of tops and seeing what came came down the pike. But by way of being exposed to all these random players versus the random assortment of cards I would get, you would start to become attached to certain players, much like um, I see Robots and Steve Balboni. Um, simply based on having the card and kind of, for whatever reason, something about the card spoke to you, something about that player you'd had an affinity with. And again, it had nothing to do with the X's and O's of swinging a bat, hitting a ball and running. It was all of that sort of field of dreams, Americana mythos that was behind it. Um, and I was very taken with that. And again, I didn't, I wouldn't sit there and watch baseball per se as a kid. I feel like it was on all the time. Like my dad would always have baseball on the radio. Um, there's usually a game on TV, but it's not like I sat there and religiously watched games in real time, but I did like collecting bits and pieces and tidbits here and there of the sport of various player trivia. And I would go to games as a child when I was really young. We lived in San Francisco. I would, uh, go with my dad. My dad was a San Francisco Giants fan. We go to Giants games at Candlestick Park sometimes, but we would actually go to probably more Oakland A's, Oakland Athletics Games, because while my dad was not an A's fan, the A's Stadium was much easier to get to without a car. Um, and we lived in San Francisco. And We had a car, but you know, it's, it, when you're do, doing the urban thing, you don't not necessarily want to always be driving everywhere. And we were able to take BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit, over to Oakland and go to the Coliseum and check out a game. And even as a little kid, I always felt there was more a more authentic electricity at the A's games. They were more exciting. Those green and gold colors were uh, exciting. Uh, there was always some, there was this guy, Crazy George, that was always there banging a drum and, and chanting. And there just felt to be a real dedicated camaraderie of the fan base. And this this real, this a different feeling in the East Bay, a different feeling in Oakland than... Uh, San Francisco, even when the Giants were a candlestick. So as I got to be older, in my 10s, my tweens, and early teens, baseball for me, again, was baseball cards. It was playing wiffle ball out in the backyard with the Basawapatna brothers. Um, It was hanging out over at those same brothers' house playing a uh, Macintosh computer game they had that was called Hardball! And I say that because I had an exclamation point. It was hardball, exclamation point. We would play that endlessly, uh, brother team versus brother team. Sometimes we'd switch which brother was which, which brother was with which as we played each other. Um was into RBI baseball on the Nintendo. Um, and so, it again, it was one of these things where it was it, it was always there, even if I didn't even notice that it was there. Baseball was just kind of there. Um, as I became a young adult and I controlled my own destiny, uh, there was a certain point in time in my early twenties when Ms. S and I were not married, but we were living together. And we were kind of like, you know, of the age where now we had our own social life. We could go out and do stuff, uh, as, as young adults out in the world. Um, I decided I was going to become a sports fan in high school. In my friend group, sports had become decidedly uncool because I rolled with a group that started off kind of in the loser category in junior high, like we would get picked on, made fun of. And then uh, there was kind of a cultural shift, and by high school, my friend group had almost become weirdly cool because the whole loser thing had actually kind of established its own cool cachet because now losers were in edgy punk bands and losers listen to Nirvana and losers, you know, were smoking cigarettes out in the bridge at lunch. And so, but part of that that cool loser uh, culture was like, you don't like jocks. You don't like jocks, man. Sports are for jocks. Sports are dumb. But I've always had this uh, current in me where I kind of want to rebel against whatever's happening in the group that I'm in at any time. You know, I'm a loner, dotty, a rebel. And so at a certain point, I was like, you know, if, if everyone, if all these people I know Dislike sports so much. There's got to be something about it. Like, why is it such a, a, a divisive thing? Why is it such a draw? And I was remembering how interesting baseball was to me as a youth. And I was like, you know what? I remember baseball wasn't all that bad. In fact, in fact, baseball was downright more interesting than bands and smoking cigarettes at the bridge. And uh, you can actually go to baseball games. I remember how baseball games used to be fun. And I'm like this adult person now. I can go to baseball games on my own. I live in the Bay Area. So, um, I, uh, started following baseball. I started following football. Baseball, I, for whatever reason, gravitated just to the family tradition of the San Francisco Giants. Football, I rebelled against my family because, remember, I'm a loner, dotty, a rebel, and became a fan of the Oakland Raiders instead of the San Francisco 49ers, which my family were fans of. We can talk about the Oakland Raiders on another, another time. That's another topic. Um... But I picked those two sports, I started following them, I started watching them regularly, I started going to Giants games, but the problem with Giants games is right around the time that I became a fan is when the Giants moved to their current ballpark. They went from the dismal concrete wasteland of Candlestick Park and moved into this precious jewel-by-the-water which at the time was Pac Bell Park. I can't even remember what it's called now. It's been AT&T Park. I don't know what the current name is. But uh, so the culture changed completely. When the Giants played at Candlestick Park, no one really wanted to go there. So you could just walk up and buy a ticket and go to a game. Um, with the move to Pac Bell, now it was the trendy thing in town. Um, tech companies would buy out seats for people who either didn't show up or they'd show up and they'd be on their... Uh, device the whole time. It was kind of the early days. I don't even think smart. No, smartphones weren't a thing yet, but like the early days of having laptops with Wi-Fi and they had really good Wi-Fi at the park. So you'd see all these fools sitting cross-legged in in like the promenade areas, like not even watching the game, just on their computers. Hard to get tickets, expensive to get tickets, just a total pain in the behind to get in there just to watch a freaking ball game. And to me, it really degraded the whole feel. There's something very populist about baseball. I know that's not the case. Most markets around the country, it's hard to get into games if you've got a hot team and and it's expensive and all that, just like everything else is in the world. But it was very hard for me to swallow how radically Giants fan culture changed. For me, this thing that you could just walk up to and go see to something that you had to be on a VIP list to get into. Very off-putting to me. Um, I still remain a fan of the Giants, but at the same time... And the Giants were kind of doing well. They didn't. They never took it all the way in that time period. But it was the days of Barry Bonds who... Say what you will about Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds haters can shove it. Because I had the great honor and pleasure of seeing Barry Bonds play live more times than I can count. And steroids, whatever. Everyone was on steroids in that era. It did not make everyone Barry Bonds. Uh... Armando Rios was on the Giants at the same time with Barry Bonds taking steroids. You ever heard of Armando Rios? Marvin Bernard was on the Giants at the same time as Barry Bonds taking steroids. You ever heard of Marvin Bernard? Barry Bonds, it was literally, I mean, it was akin to watching, I have to imagine, it was akin to watching Babe Ruth play. Just, not even the skill, not even the ability... But just the sheer mythology that exuded from him when you would watch him play. You knew you were watching not a a once-in-a-generation, not a a once-in-a-lifetime. You were watching a once-ever player. And I'm not even saying like I'm some huge Barry Bonds fan, and I'm no longer a Giants fan. But I have to be honest, and I have to give you my honest opinion, that there was something larger than life. There was something next level about the great Barry Bonds. Yes, he was part of the steroid era. I actually find the steroid era entertaining. It doesn't bother me. Cheating's part of baseball. Look all the way back into the history. Of course, you got to toe that line and not get caught. But there's, you know, cheating is part of the mythology. Cheating is part of the game. And again, steroids don't automatically make you a good player. Uh, So back off on the Barry Bonds hate. Uh, Let's find a spot in our baseball heart for the great Barry Bonds. In any case, uh, the Giants were doing pretty good in that era. They would go to the playoffs, but they never made it all the way. They made it to the World Series at least once while I was watching them. um, And then just imploded. But meanwhile, there was this whole Oakland A's thing going over across the bay. And I kind of, you know that meme where it's like a man walking with a woman that's supposed to be like his girlfriend or wife or something, they're holding hands maybe, and he's like pivoting and looking over at some other woman and you have to insert, you know, what the different women represent and what the guy represents. So for me, I was the guy and the woman you're holding hands with was the San Francisco Giants, So the one you're like pivoting around to look at was the Oakland A's. I always knew there was something cooler, going on on the other side of the bay. I was no, knew there was something more kind of scrappy, more exciting, more dramatic going on. And at some point, um, well, we actually moved to Oakland. I guess that was the catalyst for me. We, Ms. S. and I moved to Oakland. I read the amazing book, Moneyball, about um, the management structure of the Oakland A's. And I was blown away by that book. Because um, part of my psychology, part of the Mr. Sensational of Vega psychology is an obsession with simulations, an obs- obsession with like putting a bunch of stats into a machine and seeing how they spit out on the other end. That's why I play games like Fire Pro Wrestling where you pit realistically statted wrestlers against each other. And I don't even play them. I do computer simulation to see with all those realistic stats who comes out on top. Similar with sports games, I do the same thing. And so I was like, my God, with Moneyball, it was literally playing a sim game with human beings in actual real life statistics. Because the whole point of Moneyball is the Oakland A's are a team with no money and no ownership interest in signing big long-term contracts for star players. So their general manager at the time, Billy Bean, had to come up with a way of creating a competitive team without big money star players. And his... Way to do that was by honing in very specifically on certain statistics and building everything around that. Building everything around your on-base percentage. If someone can get on base, that means they're eventually going to score. So it's not necessarily looking at the flashier batting averages, the flashier home run totals. If you've got a high on-base percentage, you're going to score. Uh, just stuff like that. I mean, I'm just giving you the most minor uh, thumbnail sketch of, of the whole um, saber metric, as they call it, Billy Bean Um Statistical approach to baseball. A lot of people clown on uh, sabermetrics on Billy Bean because most of these teams that do it have not actually won a World Series. But the thing is, the A's should not even be in contention of the way that they have been in the decades since Billy Bean has been in charge. So the fact that he's even able to keep the team at all entertaining, at all relevant using his statistic statistical modeling does speak to the approach. I mean, at the end of the day, you want big stars on your team that can hit a million home runs. I get it. But when you don't have that, it's this other approach. And it's such a baseball approach. It's such a, you know, this... Uh, whole statistical modeling approach and how that's how you determine your team, you determine your lineup. It's the adult major league version of sitting in your bedroom, looking at your package of tops, baseball cards, and uh, deciding which players you like based on their statistics, poring over those statistics, geeking out about them, using them to determine what your lineup is going to be in the next backyard T-ball game versus the boswell Potna brothers. Do you want Carney Lansford to be your leadoff hitter? Do you want Wade Boggs to be your cleanup hitter? Et cetera, et cetera. But Sabermetrics is grown adults doing it for real with real major league baseball teams. And there's just, again, something very baseball and something about the charm and appeal of baseball about that to me. And when I read... Moneyball for the first time back in, I guess it would have been the early 2000s. It really spoke to me and it, really re- it made me realize how much I actually did love baseball without even realizing it and just kind of rekindled that love, expanded it even further. But it also got me just even more fascinated with the A's, that tantalizing other team that had always been across the bay. Now it was the side of the bay that I was on. And Oakland in general was a fun place to live, was an inspiring place to live Oakland gets a lot of shade. It gets a very bad rap in Northern California from people that aren't familiar with it that have not been there. When I moved there and I would tell people from Sonoma County, from Santa Rosa, places like that, um, that I had moved to Oakland, they'd always be like, oh, I'm sorry. And part of this bad rap is you hear a lot of headlines about crime in Oakland and shootings in Oakland, and all of this stuff most certainly does exist. But it predominantly exists in very specific places, and you can lead an entire life in Oakland without really coming into contact with kind of the the, the worst sides of Oakland, the uglier sides of Oakland. You know, there, there's always the news of the weird, you know, someone gets assaulted downtown or this, that, or the third. But I mean, these are the stories of any urban city in America, probably any city anywhere when you have a large population uh, base strange things are going to jump off from now and then but for the most part Oakland was this fun vibrant colorful small city it's only about you know 400,000 500,000 people which is really insane that it has at various times housed up to three major sports franchises I mean I guess part of it is the proximity where it is the Bay Area is weird I was talking to someone from New York about this once where in New York you have this huge sprawling New York City consisting of all these boroughs and then nothing else really in the state In Northern California, you have 5 million smaller cities that probably, a lot of them could be probably grouped into larger metropolitan areas, but it's just the sprawling general Bay Area. So yeah, 400,000 people, Oakland, uh, right next to all these other East Bay cities that are all jammed up together that are all part of the same transit continuum uh, that could again all be one entity but they're not so that, that's part of why Oakland it's deceiving that while it is a smaller city there is a high population base there hence the sports teams um, But it is a charming city. it is a working class city. it is a city of the people as they say, and it definitely everything that you do there has that feeling. It, it's a very Sesame Street feeling in Oakland. It's, it's the people that you meet each day in the neighborhood you live in. And I lived in a neighborhood where there was always, you know, a store, a corner store. either lived upstairs from a corner store down the street from one. Uh, you get to know all the different weird characters. Um, it, I just, I truly enjoyed living there. It truly makes me sad that so many people are down on it just from kind of a base cursory, stereotypical idea what Oakland actually is. Great place. Um, I'm glad to have spent time there. But as I became a fan of the A's, we moved to Oakland, I decided I was going to start going to A's games. I was going to say farewell to the Giants. I was going to become an A's fan. And there is nothing really more emblematic of the city of Oakland than the Oakland Athletics. If you if you get a chance, find and I sometimes have a hard time finding this, but once in a while I can find it somewhere on YouTube, kind of comes and goes. There was an HBO documentary some years ago called The Rebels of Oakland um, about the Oakland A's, about the Oakland Raiders. Tom Hanks, I think, does some of the commentary. But it's just really a love story about Oakland and what those teams mean and have meant or, or did mean to Oakland and how each team embodies the Oakland spirit, which is really this kind of flower growing in the concrete. You know, that's it's it's one of those types of places, and the teams are really indicative of that. So when I lived in Oakland and when I started going to A's games, it was really amazing because I could walk out the front door of the building I lived in, walk down the street, go downstairs to a BART station, and about 10 minutes later, excuse me, be at the Oakland Coliseum, didn't even need a ticket, could walk up, could purchase a ticket, uh, pennies on the dollar, grab a seat. No one wants to go to the Oakland Coliseum. It's this big concrete basin, but the games are just as fun as any games anywhere else. Um, and to me, that ability of just being able to low maintenancely walk up and get there on transit with no muss, no fuss is, is priceless. So I would, I could be, you know random day of the week where I didn't have school, didn't have work. You know what? I feel like going to a ball game. Hop on the bar, get down there. Uh, could have uh, several cold ones and have to worry about driving home. Uh, enjoy myself, go back home and just make a day of it. I, I, to this day, to this day, the major credit card that I use, I have this MasterCard. And one day I was at a random uh, Oakland game, middle of the week, weekday game. Uh, it was back when I think that they had a lot more day games back then. I think day games have slowly been getting phased out uh, for television reasons, but day game rolled up, had a few cold ones, got approached by some solicitor that wanted me to sign up for a free credit card. And if I signed up, I'd get a Oakland A's towel, signed up, got the towel, got the credit card. I don't think I still have the towel. I still have the credit card. Still to this day, lowest interest rate of any credit card I use, and I still, it's, it, when I don't always use credit cards, but when I do, I use the Oakland A's MasterCard, that I still own. Um, but yeah, there was just, there was a fun feel with the A's that I did not have with the Giants, and it was a feel that uh, continued to keep my baseball love alive, and there, there was just so much, a lot of baseball mythology in that park. And in the American League in general, I I much prefer the American League to the National League. I know National League fans will cite the sanctity of the pitcher hitting. Does anyone really want to watch a pitcher hit? The whole designated hitter rule is phenomenal, too, because when you watch American League games, it opens up this whole other avenue for kind of older guys, guys at the tail end of their career, to have one last shot just as a hitter, as a pure hitter. And we've seen that happen time and again with the A's. We've seen the uh, big hurt Frank Thomas's come in for a stint. We've seen uh, the Jason Giambi's come back for one last run at the twilight of their career. We've seen the uh, Mike Piazza's get a whirl as a designated hitter. And it doesn't always pan out, but I I love that it gives it just yet another avenue to have these old timers come back for one last attempt to get a hold of that glory. Glory days, didn't I see robots have an episode about that recently? But anyway, um, what's my point here? My point is, baseball is life. Baseball is love. I have not always necessarily recognized the love I have uh, for baseball with the zeal that I should. But whenever I stop to think about it, I realize, gosh darn it, I do love baseball. And I don't know that I, I mean I would always, even if I hadn't switched over to the A's, hadn't embraced the Oakland Athletics lifestyle. I'd still be, uh, I'd still love baseball, but the A's just made that love bloom even more for me, just because of, um, you know, I'm not going to be a Yankees fan, we don't live in a huge market for baseball, so if we're not in the thick of it in the East Coast with those real teams like the Yankees, then I may as well. I, I'm happy that I can find a team that's scrappy, that has this weird gimmick statistical approach to baseball that I can cling to that's such an overachiever that does more than anyone can ever hope for them to do year in and year out. It's been a little rough this year, a bad start to the year. But man, that's the funny thing too. People are so weird about really taking a step back and looking at the reality of a situation. Because the A's have been off to a horrendous start so far this year, you'll see a lot of chatter online um, on you know, A's social media posts of fans complaining about, like, we need to stop trading away our big-time stars. This is why our team sucks. It's like, folks, we're never going to keep our big-time stars. It's a small market team with owners who don't spend money on the payroll. It's been like that for at least the last 20 years. So strap in and enjoy the wild ride. I saw other people uh, with this horrendous start. Same old days. Typical days. Uh, I think this was their worst start in the last, like, 105 years or something like that. Insane like that. So, nope, not the same old days. It is a particularly bad year. Worse than we're used to. But people are just so, like, glum and whiny and complaining. I don't care. I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying the sound of the crack of the bat. The, the imagined smell of the grass. Seeing a few people in the stands. Um... I didn't even get to, uh, on this episode, which is rapidly winding to a close, talk about uh, the the intrigue of the A's when they were in their big-time steroid Bash Brothers run, when they just completely annihilated the Giants in the Bay Bridge World Series back when I was a little kid Giants fan. But even then, I was like, who are these guys? Like, man, Ricky Henderson, my favorite baseball player of all the times looking back, uh, one of my favorite just characters in general of all the times looking back. God bless Ricky Henderson. So, just an ambassador of the sport. Just a uh, if you if you wanted to explain to someone what baseball is, you could do worse than open up an encyclopedia and point to a picture of Ricky Henderson. But but so much rich history with the A's that I have both admired from afar, but then in the last twenty years been able to appreciate um, actually as a bona fide fan so much just baseball in general that is just kind of out there in the ether. Washing over you. And that's part of the fun of baseball. It's not so much an intense fandom situation as it is an experience, a feeling, a state of mind, the state of mind of falling asleep in the back seat of your parents' Honda Civic station wagon as uh, the car's kind of bumping along the road and the crackling AM sound of the baseball game and the uh, car dealership commercials are, are playing in the background as you drift in and out of consciousness. That, that's baseball. And by gosh... I love it. I uh, hope some of you out there enjoy baseball. I hope if you don't, you at least enjoy this take on baseball, this take on the Oakland A's, this little insight into what spring means to me. This was originally going to be a spring break episode. I was going to t- tell some spring break tales, but time got away with me with being off a, a week and ago, a and then I didn't do it last week. We'll save spring break for next year, but uh, it is still spring has sprung. Spring is here. And spring is spring break, but spring is also baseball. And I just wanted to give this little ode to the game, ode to the sport, ode to my kind of quiet passion for baseball that isn't always I don't always wear it on my sleeve, but it is there Folks, I'll be back next week with yet another episode of the Mr. Sensational Geno Vega podcast on the IC Robots Radio Network. Hope you all are doing well out there and I will drone on to you again shortly. Until then it's me, Mr. Sensational Gino Vega signing.